BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the author and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia or its employees. Due to discussion of traumatic, sexual, and violent content, listener discretion is advised. I think once, maybe twice a year, people from the state would come out to do like an inspection or something. This is Terry, a former patient of the Anawakey North Campus in Rockmart, the all-girls facility. She remembers during her time how the staff would handle visits from state agencies that were meant to check on the treatment center and how it operated. With Anawakey now being a licensed medical facility, it had to be recorded that patients were getting the proper treatment they were supposed to. And I remember the first time when they came out, They picked, like, three of us girls to be the one to answer any questions. And so they took the rest of the group, like, way, way out into the woods, like a mile out into the woods. And I can remember when the first inspector lady came, one of the group leaders told her, the girls are out on a work project about a mile out in the woods. I guess they just knew that the inspector probably wasn't going to hike out a mile. But we were available, so there were like three of us, and we were told even before the inspector came, if they asked if we met with a psychiatrist to let them know that we did and that we had 30 to 45-minute sessions. At this point in time, Anawakey was sold to the parents of its patients, largely as a medical treatment center with daily therapy. In reality, this therapy was greatly exaggerated 
often amounting to no more than a few minutes at most with an actual therapist. I don't think my parents realized until I got out that I really didn't get the help that I needed. We would see a psychiatrist, I want to say once a week. It might have been every other week, but we would literally, like, get in a line and go one after the other, and you'd only get a few minutes. And they would just write on a clipboard, and they would literally look at their clock and say, okay, time's up, next. I mean, it was a joke. We (laughs) like going to the psychiatrist because it gave us, like, a five-minute break from the heavy labor work. But, I mean, we didn't even get that much time. It it was a joke. And I do know um, that my parents were charged for, like, a 45-minute visit, I think is what it was supposed to be, 30 or 45 minutes. And we used to laugh about it. I guess we knew the doctors were making all this money off of us. (laughs) And they're only seeing us, like, for a couple of minutes. Terry says that during these visits from state officials, the designated patients who were allowed to answer questions were to downplay the lack of education, as well as how their time was really being spent. They told us to explain to them that it was an earned privilege and that some people did go to school. And then there was another thing that we were told not to let them know. They, like, encouraged us not to talk about the manual labor that we did all day. And the only reason why I would go along with it, because I knew it wasn't right, like, to not tell them the truth on certain things. But it was another way where I (laughs) I thought I was getting brownie points, you know, because they chose me to be the one to talk. So I thought it just put me on their good side that looking back, that was pretty messed up because they probably could have helped us if I had told the truth, but that's just the way it went. Although Terry went along with Anawaki's plan to hide their abuse from government officials, she did try to report the wrongdoing to her family when she had the chance. I did try to tell my parents on one of my home visits, especially about the two counselors I had that were sleeping together, that had a relationship, and all the sexual things that were going on and how uncomfortable I was, and I really wanted to get out of there. Well, it backfired because when they brought me back from my home visit, they met with one of the social workers, and then they called me in, and the social worker just berated me. She said, you know, one of your biggest problems and the reason why you're out here and you're still out here is because you're a manipulator, and what you've done um, to your parents trying to make up these things saying that there's this sexual abuse and things going on just so you can get out you're not gonna get away with that you know they see right through it we see right through it and so it was like I was a liar and they didn't they believed the social worker they didn't believe me anymore and that she said that I wasn't the only patient out there trying to do that that there were other kids saying the same thing just so they could get out You know, she tried to intimidate me, saying, do you know how serious it is to make allegations like that about your counselors and about other girls doing these things with each other? I just, I backed off. I knew. 
Over the past several weeks, we have received a number of very serious allegations concerning both the facility out there and a the number of individuals involved with it. It was just a form of their therapy. They were told to do it, and at the time, he was 14 and a half, 15 years old. They didn't know any better. I asked him, why are you letting this happen? Why are you covering up for Louis better? He had no answers to that question. The thought of having an institution paid in a hospital to be such a despicable place and to do absolutely the contrary of what they should have done. I'm disturbed over the fact that something is still going on at Anawaki. I'm Josh Thane. And this is Camp Hell, Anawakee. By the mid-1980s, Anawakee had reached its highest attendance numbers yet. Not only was it operating on three different campuses, Douglasville, Rockmart, and Carabell, it was now taking its patients on trips to other countries. In a board meeting from 1983, plans for an Anawakee University were discussed a program that would continue on through graduate degree status. Disruptions in the organization had started to occur. One catalyst began with a legal dispute over the recording rights to the songs written by the patient you just heard from, Terry. During this dispute, it was also brought to her parents' attention other wrongdoings which occurred while her and her brothers attended. In particular, that maybe they weren't getting the treatment which their parents had been paying for. The fact that Terry's brothers had also been involved with the annual trip to Mexico made matters even worse. Here's journalist Albert Edgen. At the same time, there was a parent whose daughter had written a song about Anawaki, and there was a complaint, there was some dispute over whether she was going to get paid for the song or how the recording studio was going to be paid. But that parent then, in a coincidental parallel track learned about the trips to the Mexican brothels. This cause for alarm regarding payment to Anawaki was not a rare instance. With Anawaki now collecting payments from its patients' insurance, oftentimes parents would not realize what they were actually paying for the school. One quoted number for yearly tuition to Anawaki was $33,000 a year in the early 80s the equivalent of over $100,000 today. Receiving payment from medical insurance policies was just one of Anawaki's multiple revenue streams. With the purchase of land for its three campuses and properties in Mexico and Canada, Anawaki had set up a shell corporation called Anawaki Estates. This LLC would own the real estate Anawaki had acquired and would then lease the property to its other corporation Anawaki Incorporated, in essence, shifting funds from the patients back to the owners of Anawaki Estates. And who were the owners of this shell corporation? None other than Louis Petter's three daughters, Dana, Rita, and Marcia. They were leasing them just like anybody else would be leasing real estate from another company, any other business. So the nonprofit was paying the profit corporation, the nonprofit Anawaki Inc. was paying Anawaki Estates rent, for lack of a better way of putting it. And I don't recall the amounts involved there, but the ownership of that was the three daughters. This is Frank Wynn, 
He was the DA for Douglas County in the 1980s. He says the business behind Anawaki's financial interest was largely tied to the Petter family. Petter's daughters would go on to marry others involved in the organization. Marsha Petter to Bud Pettigo, Anawaki's main accountant, and Rita Petter to James Henry Evans, one of Anawaki's heads of management. Anawaki Estates would have been the name of the, that corporation. Anawaki Inc. was the not-for-profit or non-profit organization that, you know, I believe most of the board of directors thought when they authorized stuff that they were authorizing purchases in the name of Anawaki Inc. And actually, they were leasing a lot of the facilities from Anawaki Estates. So the family, that was the big picture of the family's involvement. You had three of them that owned the for-profit corporation. Both of his daughters were in charge of different departments. Two of his son-in-laws were involved. His wife was also involved, all of them in a director-type position. It is around this same time that some changes were happening in the law enforcement agencies of Douglas County. For years, the sheriff had been Claude Abercrombie. Sheriff Abercrombie, too, had close ties with Anawaki, even teaching a horse-breaking class to the boys who would come and work on his horse farm. Abercrombie's term ended in the mid-70s after his deputy sheriff, Earl Lee, decided to run against him for the position and was elected. Earl Lee became a known character of Douglas County lore. Here's what Frank Wynn remembers about him. Well, Earl Lee was sheriff of Douglas County when, when I came along. He had a, a reputation that clearly was a walking tall type of sheriff. Some of it was very much talk. I learned to know Earl and, and love him because I could see just how obsessive he would get investigating a homicide. He couldn't stand that someone was killed and that there wasn't justice trying to find who, who did it. And he would work very hard. He wouldn't just jump in and arrest somebody. He's certainly the kind of person that would not back down or somebody that you didn't want to have a fight with. So he, he had developed a reputation with a lot of people. Local from Douglasville, Pat Kirkland, remembers how Earl Lee was thought of at the time. Earl Lee has a reputation all his own. Earl Lee was an old West lawman. He was the law. I mean, everybody knew that. Earl Lee is the law in Douglas County. Earl Lee was just a good old boy, old small town, you know, sheriff and everything. Of course, he was, you know, he was elected by the people and everything. But he just really didn't put up with too much stuff from anyone. Uh, back several years ago, there, he, was, <laughs> he had a prisoner in the back of his car, and I remember this. Somehow that prisoner in handcuffs committed suicide in the back of Earl Lee's car. Now how in the heck did that happen? Earl Lee had a reputation in the county. I think he did a lot of good for the county and everything, but Earl Lee was an old West lawman. It's going to be my way, or you ain't going to like the circumstances or the what happens at, with it. I know that there were some a couple of instances where people got shot, and people believed that Earl uh, had shot them. But I had reviewed the files 
when I first came along, just out of curiosity, and had had talked to some people in the sheriff's department, and the truth was Earl had not been the one that shot the people, but he never, ever would back down from letting people believe it. He wouldn't correct them because he felt like it helped his reputation as far as, uh, uh, you know, law enforcement, as far as the criminal uh uh, elements were concerned. There were a lot of people. I heard tapes of people that would were doing drug transactions and would say, I'm not going to Douglas County or I'm not going to Earl Lee's County. That was more likely how they would say it. It was amazing sometimes. I'll never forget one case where he told me, he said, I tried to let my people do the job on their own and let them branch out and be able to do it. And they had actually gone and searched an apartment and came back and told him they couldn't, they just didn't find anything. And, and Earl believed that just didn't make sense in relation to this case, that that person had to have been somehow involved in the body that we found in Douglas County. Earl, he asked the guy, you still give us consent to search? And Earl went back and searched with the same officers and first thing he notices is uh, just a few little red spots, real minor red spots on the wall. And he realizes that nobody has turned the bed over. So he makes his officers flip the bed. And the first thing they see is some blood. And then they find some on the bottom side of a pillow. And whether it's true or not, I remember Earl, after they started, after they clearly had found blood, he said, let me show you where the gun is. And he said, so I took him into the guy's closet and started patting down the clothes. And the gun had been placed on the inside pocket of a coat. This was clearly the murder weapon, but his officers had missed it. And Earl, once he found the blood, he, he knew exactly where somebody might hide a gun and, and that his officers might not have looked at. And that still might have been a problem, but he... He brings the guy into his office and very politely interviews him and and goes over his rights with him and talks to him for a little while, reaches under his desk and pulls up the jacket and says, tell me about this jacket. And the guy immediately starts explaining why the gun was there. And Earl had made had spent 30 minutes never mentioning the gun, never told the guy the point of the coat and like Earl told me uh, when we were prosecuting the case, it was better than a confession. Frank says that while Earl Lee had his suspicions about Anawaki, he never had enough of a case to make an arrest or conduct a formal investigation. This outlook changed after a tragic incident occurred on the Douglasville campus. From Earl's Lee's standpoint, one of the things that had caught his attention had been that uh, there was a situation where a kid had killed himself. He had jumped off of, I'm going to call it an old rock or brick type of chimney structure and landed on a concrete slab. And that was something that Earl was very uh, touched any time a kid died and he would get involved uh, and he would become obsessive compulsive. Carl Moore remembers his reaction when he was informed there had been a suicide at Anawaki. 
There was a uh, a chimney of one of the cabins that was left. I can't. I think it was just a chimney with a slab. I, I don't remember why it was that way, but uh, he climbed to the top of that and uh, dove off. I had been uh, on a trip somewhere. I can't remember what I was doing now, but I had someone had picked me up at the airport and told me that one of the kids had killed themselves. It just devastated me to hear that. I think I actually arrived back at the campus as the ambulances were still there. I got the idea that a lot of the kids knew him. It was a big deal. That was something he never could figure out, why that kid did what he did. They just He wasn't provided with enough information from Manawaki that made him comfortable that it explained the kid committing suicide. And so that was just something that bothered him, and he spoke to me about it. And so it was something that we sort of, in our minds, had in the back of our thought process when, when other things developed. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
By 1980, Louis Petter's friend and confidant, Jim Parham, had completed his term as a part of Jimmy Carter's presidential cabinet and had returned to serve as a member of the board of directors for Anawaki. With Anawaki licensed as an official medical hospital, it was now subject to receive state funding as a mental institute as part of a new mental health program put into place by the DHR, the same organization which Parham was once head of. In a document from the Georgia Department of Human Resources from January 18, 1980, it is recorded that the state of Georgia paid Anna Wakey the sum of $872,000 of taxpayer money, the purpose of which was to build a brand new Evaluation and Observation, or E&O, building that could house up to 45 additional patients. While Anna Wakey was clearly still in good graces with state government agencies, Others were beginning to become suspicious of the tax-exempt organization. Following the suicide on campus and Anawaki's resistance to investigate it, local authorities were now looking more closely into the financial organization behind Anawaki. In 1982, Douglas County decided to revoke Anawaki's nonprofit tax exemption, followed by an attempt to recoup hundreds of thousands of dollars in back taxes the county felt it was owed. Insurance companies who were now being charged hundreds of thousands of dollars also began to question the validity of Anawaki's treatment. An early correspondence from 1978 shows Blue Cross Blue Shield arguing that the treatment costing upwards of $100,000 for a patient was not covered under their plan. Another correspondence from the United States Department of Defense Division of Health Affairs regarding the son of a retired Army officer shows a decline to cover the treatment provided at Anawaki. Upon further review, it called the treatment, quote, not medically necessary. While state agencies and insurance companies alike were beginning to grow skeptical of Anawaki's practices, other things were starting to make parents of the students and even board members of Anawaki suspicious. One of these board members that would greatly affect the future of Anawaki was one Sarah Tillis. Here's journalist Albert Edgen. Sarah Tillis was the mother of several children who had been treated at Anawaki and who were still being treated at Anawaki in the 80s, but also an important member of the board, a very influential member of the board of directors, and eventually the chairman of the board of directors. She and her husband were very involved in all sorts of activities there and very supportive, friends with Petter, and wealthy in their own right, and had been seduced by Petter. Petter made sure that her children were given special attention. At the end of the day, Petter was a good counselor. If he wanted to be a good counselor, he could be a good counselor. So if he had somebody he needed to curry favor with, and the way to do it was to counsel her children in a very professional and accomplished way, he did it. And that's what he did with Sarah Tillis. He lured her in. He seduced her in the same way that he seduced those boys through his manipulation of her emotions. So Sarah became an Anawaki advocate on steroids. I mean, she was the she was Anawaki's face. And in return, her children were taken care of, and she was introduced by Petter to the you know political hierarchy in two different states. You know, she could go to all sorts of affairs and events with the governor of Florida or the governor of Georgia. It was very 
you know, very high cotton for a suburban housewife in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. He gave her those avenues. During one of Anawaki's annual Mexico trips in 1984, a group of board members joined along. A number of incidents occurred, which gave alarm to Sarah Tillis and others. In particular, witnessing what she believed to be an inappropriate relationship with Carl Moore and Petter's teenage granddaughter, Cherie. You have to think, that was a pretty well-developed system by 1984 when Sarah stumbled onto just one aspect of it. And the aspect of it that she stumbled on was, is important in the narrative because it changed her opinion of Petter. And that was that Petter's granddaughter, who was 14, was engaging in sexual foreplay with the driver of a van that was taking Anawaki officials around Mexico. And Petter knew this was happening. It was his granddaughter. A couple of the, the board members, Sarah Tillis being the main one, noticed that and complained about it. Looking back on it, it's amazing, and it sort of is a testament to, to Petter's um, sheer control over, the, over people. He could control people's opinion of him. And so even though this was something that, that Sarah t- disapproved of, she was able to put that in some sort of a, a, a place where it was something that troubled her, but it didn't completely alter her opinion initially of Petter. I asked Carl Moore about his involvement with Petter's then-teenage granddaughter. He says this was just another sign of how bad things had gotten for him. There was a larger context to it. Um, Doesn't justify or really change anything about it. I think it was uh, another example in a way of how twisted things were for me at the time, and I, I don't think it's, I don't think I can say anything else about it. I have to think it was a smokescreen in some ways. After this episode published, I was contacted by both Carl and Cherie. Carl and Cherie both stated that their relationship was strictly as friends and never sexual. When asked about her relationship with Carl, Cherie stated, quote, Carl has never been anything but good to me. He cared about what happened to me without ever wanting something in return. When asked again about his relationship with Cherie, Carl stated, quote, I was being her friend without being sexual. I knew there was a risk that my affection was being misunderstood by others, and I did not care what they thought. It is ironic to me that after all these years, that an act of kindness caused the outrage required for the board of directors at Anawaki to ultimately act. Sarah Tillis would later give a written statement outlining this trip to Mexico. A group from Anawaki's Board of Trustees flew to Mexico City to join the rest of the group from Anawaki. A lavish trip is recorded, with the group being housed by presidents of different areas in Mexico and other government officials. She describes inappropriate behavior involving Carl Moore, then 26, with Petter's 14-year-old granddaughter, Cherie. When Petter is confronted by some of the board members, he states, quote, It's not any of your goddamn business or the trustees as to why I brought Cherie to Mexico, even stating that he will call a board meeting himself 
to tell the trustees the same thing. No such meeting ever happened. I think the turning point was when he was dismissive of the complaints about the relationship that was observed between his granddaughter and Carl Moore. What he said after he heard complaints about this relationship with Carl Moore was something like, she's going to get screwed by somebody. It may as well be Carl Moore. So that was shocking to the people that heard that and heard that he had said that. And that set up a sort of a permanent avenue that he would never get out of, a permanent avenue of disapproval that he had never had to deal with before, really. It was later in the fall when board members who knew about the uh, relationship between Petter's granddaughter and Carl Moore now were learning that some of the children, some of the uh, kids had gone to brothels at the same time, which would then... I mean, that's just an example of how it began to get out of that one avenue and expand. And it took a long time before uh, it exploded, but maybe not that long when you think about it in retrospect. Because if he was doing it since 1947, somebody notices in 1984 and the disapproval sticks in their mind, it, it only took a year and a half from there for it to fall apart. Upon returning from the Mexico trip, Sarah Tillis began asking questions to the upper management of Anawaki. She claimed that she had been told by one of the patients who had consistently not been given a bet on the trip that it was due to Petter wanting to, quote, play the sex game. According to a statement by Sarah Tillis, when this was brought to Petter's wife Mabel's attention, her response was that those types of matters were not reported possibly influenced by the confrontations by board members or issues involving receiving payment from insurance companies, Louis Petter attempted a sale of Anawaki shortly after the Mexico trip in 1984. According to his statement by Jim Parham, Petter had received offers for up to $30 million for the center. The only problem was that Petter was not willing to let Anawaki's books be scrutinized. The deal shortly fell through, board members were beginning to become suspicious, not just of Petter's actions, but also of how Anawiki's finances were being handled. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the capital region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. 
With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. By 1985, suspicions had begun to build around Anawaki and its multiple revenue streams. An incident would bring further scrutiny to the program on March 30th of that year, when a youth being evaluated for Anawaki treatment escaped from his Florida caseworker and fled the property. 14-year-old Billy Ray White disappeared into the center's wooded surroundings. Three days later, while attempting to steal a dump truck, White shot and killed local resident James D. Hall with a revolver stolen from a truck in the neighborhood. The death shocked the community, raising concerns that Anna Wakey was not properly watching over what could sometimes be dangerous patients being kept there. The, the whole community will miss him because he's lived here uh, most of his life. Sure will. Frank Givens says the killing continues to worry homeowners. Yeah, we tried to uh, have meetings set up kind of an alert system so that they would let us know when one was off. Does it worry you when some of them get out? At times, yeah. We've uh, reported, since we've been out here, we've called them running through our property and property across the road there. I've been calling them. I, I imagine we've uh, notified them at least 40 times. Inawakey officials had been warned months earlier that White was a, quote, homicidal threat and could possibly kill without feeling any remorse. Sheriff Earl Lee responded at the time, I would have intensified my search for him if I had known what they knew, but they wouldn't tell me anything at all. Government agencies and insurance companies were both beginning to inquire into Anna Wakey's financial irregularities. Soon, another tragic event would take place that would shake the foundation's structure. Bud Pedigo was Anawiki's main accountant and the person who would have to answer to anyone looking into its finances. He was also married to Petter's daughter, Marcia, both largely involved with the inner workings of the organization. In May of 1986, Pedigo was killed in an automobile accident just a few blocks away from Anawiki. A drunk driver struck Pedigo's car with him and his young daughter in the front seat. His daughter thankfully lived, but Bud was not so lucky. Carl Moore remembers being one of the first people to be notified about Pedigo's death. I think Bud was a 
he was a nice guy. He was the financial officer, like the CFO. I can't even remember how I heard about it, but I went there. It was right all, almost on the campus. I went there and uh, the car was pushed off the road. There was a van there uh, that had run into him. Almost a head-on wreck. They'd hit the driver's side of the car. When I got there, Bud was actually in the passenger seat and uh, I went down there. I didn't know why there was nobody down there. I went down there like I was gonna help him out and uh, and he was gone. I didn't know it for a little while. His daughter was in the car, his uh, youngest daughter. I think she was four or five. She had crawled out the back window of the car. What I understand, the guy driving the van, he was drunk and he was injured. But he said, hey, the guy that's driving the van ran off through the woods, which was a lie. It was actually him. And I think he was charged with it. That was a hard thing. Then Bud Pedigo died. Between the Mexico revelations in the middle of the summer of 84 and his death in March, there was a lot of conversation going on. A lot of rumors were swirling around, and that encouraged uh, children who may have been abused to talk about it among themselves, at least. And if you think about Douglas County, well, Douglas County is a small place. So a lot of people began hearing about these things. All of those things taken together contributed to an environment in which in the spring, a couple of board members started saying, we need to see an audit. We need to see what's going on with the money. Things that they had ignored about the money began to become of interest to them. With a murder and suicide, both connected to Anawaki within a few years' time, law enforcement began to take a closer look at Anawaki. What they would find out would go far beyond what they ever could have imagined. Law enforcement became aware in Douglas County of the abuse. Once that happened, then the genie was out of the bottle. There was no way that it was going to become anything other than what it became. Once Sheriff Early knew about it, that was the end. Former DA Frank Wynn says that he and his assistant, David McDade, had begun to hear complaints about Anawaki for some time and had even begun to keep a file of said complaints. One afternoon, he received a visit from Sarah Tillis that seemed to confirm some of the suspicions Wynn and Sheriff Earl Lee had had. She believed that Petter had been misleading her and the other board members. So it wasn't just sexual. She gave me enough details that I sat there till 10.30 with a lady that when she walked in the office that morning, I would have thought she was possibly a crazy lady. I I had no idea why somebody's just showing up to talk about Anawaki, but she wasn't crazy enough for me to refuse to talk to her. And she certainly immediately caught my attention and I didn't feel like she was crazy at all after I got to talking to her. But I was there till late that evening, and, and so the investigation that actually started was I talked to David McDade a little bit about some of the things that had bothered us. David and I realized we had information that bothered us from multiple sources. 
Some of the sources would have been teachers, some of it administration, uh, some of it kids that were at Anawaki, and now we had a, a board member. So we made the decision at that point that to ask Earl Lee to start an investigation. And, and Earl always believed uh, that Lewis Petter was something wasn't right. Earl started working so hard, it was impossible for anybody to keep up with him. An official criminal investigation had now begun to look into the inner workings of Anawaki and follow up on the numerous complaints against the center. Bud Pettigo's death would open the center to a financial audit from the board. Infighting amongst the upper management was only getting worse, and soon they too would be answering to authorities. Petter's empire was beginning to fall apart at the seams, and he was going to do everything he could to save himself along with it. Next time on Camp Hell, Anawaki. After Earl started talking to whoever the ones were that he interviewed to start with, it was like a snowball going downhill. It became overwhelming. His whole family was involved in Anawaki. If it was something to do with the Petter family, the cooperation was minimal. We had no way of knowing anything that was going on. We couldn't talk to our parents for the most part. We were in this bubble. It wasn't long after that that I went down to meet Petter's attorneys. They essentially wanted to videotape me denying everything, anything sexual or inappropriate or financial or anything. He calls me up, he said, Dr. Ram? I said, yes, sir. He said, we got the SOB. Camp Hell and Awakey was created and hosted by Josh Thang with producer Miranda Hawkins and executive producers Alex Williams and Matt Frederick. The soundtrack was written and performed by Josh Thang and Adrian Barry. Archival footage provided by WSB and CBS News. Find us on Instagram at Camp Hell Pod. That's C-A-M-P-H-E-L-L-P-O-D. Educate yourself about the issue of child abuse and things that you should look for at the Darkness to Light website, d2l.org. That's D, the number two, L dot O-R-G. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are the old world, picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com.